From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. If you live in the suburbs like I do, you're probably used to hopping in your car to run pretty much every errand, even if you just need to get cold medicine at the drugstore. Generally, I do this mindlessly. I grab the keys, I use the clicker to unlock the door, I put on a podcast, I drive a few minutes, then I end up cursing the terrible drivers clogging the parking lot. Of course, I'm never part of that group of terrible drivers clogging the parking lot. I'm just going about my business in a non-annoying way. <laughs> right. Only in the past year or two have I started wondering why this is part of my daily life at all. Why can't I walk more places? Why are there only single-family houses in my neighborhood? which has gotten way more expensive to live in even in just the past couple years, not to mention the past 20. There's certainly enough housing demand for duplexes or townhomes, but we don't have anywhere I live. It's easy to just assume that's the way things are, it's the way things have always been and will always be. But the built environment of our suburbs is the result of decades of choices. And it's my belief that looking at how we use land in our local communities and doing things like trying to grow public transportation, these are central ways to work on a whole collection of social justice issues. We can make housing more affordable for more people and care for God's creation and cut down on needless traffic injuries and deaths. Usually, when we make a list of social justice issues that people of faith care about, land use policies like zoning regulations aren't on the top of that list. But maybe they should be. My guest today writes on these issues in such compelling and unexpected ways. Addison Del Mastro runs his own Substack newsletter on urbanism and cultural history called The Deleted Scenes. And he also contributes pieces to places like Vox and The Bulwark and America Magazine. A Catholic who describes himself as a bit right of center politically, Addison crosses boundaries between groups that are often uncrossed in today's polarized America. He's a thinker you want to know. Read his stuff, listen to him today during this interview, and I think you'll start to see why words and phrases like zoning regulation, land use, and parking minimums are important things for all of us to be thinking and advocating about. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts, and thanks for joining us. Well, Addison Del Mastro, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you uh, for your time. Yeah, no, so good to have you here in person using our fancy recording equipment at Jesuit HQ in Washington. And I uh, invited you in because I'm a huge fan of your newsletter and your, your writing about urbanism and cultural history and the built environment and all kinds of really interesting topics and issues that we'll get into. But I first wanted to ask you about one particular topic that comes up in your writing. If you're going to make a list of the top few social justice issues Catholics care about, zoning regulation would probably not be high on the list, but it's one you write about really compellingly. And I think you make good arguments that we should really care about zoning. So first of all, what is zoning? And then why should we care about it? Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's one of my major themes. Um, and some people think it's very boring or irrelevant, but... I like to say that zoning is the DNA of the built environment. 
Now, you know, meaning the context in which everything takes place is actually determined by the zoning code. Um, I like to say your zoning board is probably more important to your daily life than the occupant of the White House. Um, now, the way you would describe zoning is regulating uses and densities, which, which sounds boring, sure. But what that basically means is that determines, you know, where your supermarket or your corner store can go out on the main highway surrounded by parking. You know, if you want a corner store in your neighborhood, you can't do that. Um, it determines more important things like even um, patterns of segregation over time, you know, everything from economics to to racial justice, all sorts of things are tied up with zoning because it determines how our places are built. I know when people, I'll see this, when people from, you know, the U.S. go to Europe and they are in Paris or Rome and they love how you can walk everywhere and it doesn't seem like there are all that many cars around, at least not like where they're walking and can get to the cafe or go uh, run an errand and just get to all kinds of places easily. And then we come back home like, oh, it's not like this at all. If I want to go to the drugstore and get something, I have to hop in the car usually. But if I wanted to build a drugstore down the street from me, you're saying that a lot of the time I'm not even I'm not even allowed to do that. That zoning prevents me from from uh, doing that, building my community that way. Yeah, basically, basically, um, people seem to think generally think that the way American land use looks is an expression of of our preferences. But you know, and to some extent that's obviously true. But a lot of it is just determined by by what the zoning code says, and many people never really even realize that. So I know that um, one thing that zoning can often be connected to now is, is housing and housing shortage. And you and I both live in an area of the country. It's a desirable, expensive area to live uh, near Washington, D.C. And there's all kinds of stories about how rent has really shot up in the, the past year, how like, housing prices, the median housing prices, you know, closer, you know, well over half a million dollars in a lot of these counties where we are, and that there are people who, you know, would we ha who would have access to jobs here, whether as teachers or working for county government or for other businesses or just can't afford to live here. And so zoning and how we build our communities could be used to kind of meet some of those challenges, but we often run into to obstacles when we're trying to do that. So could you give an example of how zoning could be used to to expand access to, to housing for more people yeah absolutely well um well depending on where you are you know if you're in the audience the names won't mean anything to you or they might but um here in the dc area um, arlington county is actually looking at what they're calling a missing middle proposal which would allow um small-scale denser housing on a single-family lot basically you know automatically no permit or rezoning required um so that would mean a duplex on a single family lot or or you know townhomes things like that some people think that's still not enough but that would be a big change when when most of arlington which which borders dc is zoned single family um so but that i, I may or may not end up ultimately passing right now you can drive an hour away from there and you're seeing houses going up, including, guess what, townhomes, <laughs> because people like that and they want to live in the region, but, but you can't put the housing where the jobs are or where the stuff already is. So it ends up going further and further out. And guess what? Then we, then we uh, widen 
Interstate 66 so that all those people pushed out can drive back in. Right. Well, that is one thing in this area, too. If you drive out into, say, Gaithersburg, like a more distant, historically rural suburb, you see all of these kind of these new, almost Disney World-ish, like mixed-use developments that will have housing right there next to retail or maybe above it and have these kind of walkable, like these new kind of quasi-downtowns, but again, feel kind of new but that ends up again as you're saying being like really far away from like the the urban core uh so you still end up needing your car a lot uh to get around places and it's so interesting to me too that like if i wanted to build a duplex in my own neighborhood or if i bought a house and wanted to tear it down like i can't i'm prevented from doing that even though that would allow two families to have a place instead of one um which yeah this it would be less expensive i guess sometimes the complaint around that like if we're looking for more density is oh it'll get more crowded and we already are stretched thin and our certain our schools are crowded and um this traffic is so bad uh what is your response to that if you hear that argument made i mean that's a real potential issue and you and that's why you have to plan for growth but but the growth in a place like this is not optional um there's a couple of ways i go one is to remind people um, that the Supreme Court that found zoning constitutional is the same court that found forced sterilization constitutional, or that some of the people who historically have uh, made noise about population overshoot were also NIMBYs. <laughs> that, you know, that there is something in a lot of that sentiment, not in everyone who holds it, but in many ways in the sentiment itself that is sort of misanthropic, particularly in an area that is growing already on um, the economy is growing the housing market sort of has to catch up it isn't you know growth for the sake of growth but the other thing is practical which is that this is counterintuitive but but there you know that when you add density the traffic doesn't necessarily get worse in fact it might get better because everyone is closer to stuff and every little errand to go do something doesn't generate a 10 minute car trip Right. I mean, cars cause traffic. People don't cause traffic. Um, and when you put people closer together and you put people closer to the stuff, you don't add more traffic. You add traffic when you spread everything out. One of the the kind of big themes here in this discussion is the idea of change or fear of change that my neighborhood, my community might be different than I'm used to. The character of the neighborhood might change. And you used a word in uh, your... Uh, response just there, uh, NIMBYs, which is an acronym for not in my backyard, and reminded me of a, a great recent essay you wrote called NIMBYism, headlined NIMBYism is a distorted love. And when I saw that, that immediately struck me as like deeply Catholic uh, and, it, and some theology there being worked in, the idea of rightly ordered or dis, like, or distorted love. Um, even like, you could look at John Paul II's theology of the body and see some uh, distorted love there and right relationship. So what, why did you write that piece um, and what, what were you trying to do in it? Yeah, um, well, I, I wrote that piece because I realized something interesting, which is um, my, my hometown, Flemington, New Jersey, in, in uh, central New Jersey, which, which exists. Some people think it's only north and south. As a fellow central Jersey native, I agree. <laughs> um, but for many years after I moved away, I had no particular interest in, in visiting Flemington, the town. I visited home, but you know, I didn't think about the town very much, even though I kind of grew up visiting it. But then recently, last couple of years, a couple of big projects have gone forward, um, restoring our historic hotel and building apartments and new retail and 
redeveloping the basically abandoned outlet mall into a new neighborhood and some other smaller changes. And the historic Flemington folks are sort of up in arms about a lot of that. But I found it sort of rekindled my sense of this is where I'm from and I, I feel a sense of, you know, no longer belonging to it, but coming from there. Um, and I thought, why, why is it that the place changing and looking different than I remember it would make me feel more like it was my home? And I thought about that and I realized, well, you know, I learned a lot about the history of this town and it looked the way it did when I grew up for maybe a few decades. A hundred years ago, it looked very different. Two hundred years ago, it looked very different. And, and it sort of dawned on me as I learned the history of this little place, a few blocks, basically, um, that its heritage was as this growing, changing, tiny city. We had a train station, we had factories, we had supermarkets and hardware stores. And, you know, you could say that was the real Flemington or Flemington today is the real Flemington, but I don't think any of them is the real thing. I think many, many people have come and gone and made it their own. And, and when you just take a particular moment in time and you say, my experience of the place is the place, you put, sort of put it under lock and key and you, and you turn it from a real living place into you know, a museum. And, and I didn't come from a museum, I came from a real place and I wanted to be that for, for the next generation. Hmm. So the sense that a place, even though it could feel static is is always changing and that would be like a sign of health of a place is that it's changing and there are new uses for for things that happens i think even a lot in some of our old church properties as we see like around uh, at least the northeast and midwest as churches are closing because as people are moving catholics are moving away how can we reuse these places that are in a way that is engages the community or opens it up to the community uh one interesting thing i think you do as opposed to some other writers in your general field is that you do write a lot about small towns and you focus on smaller areas as opposed to just the big city. So even though you're near Washington, DC, a lot of your writing is about the suburbs of Fairfax County, uh, Arlington, as you mentioned, again, I'm on the Maryland side, uh, but really interesting places with a lot of diversity. Uh, but what about smaller towns uh, attracts you? Why do you find yourself writing about those places? I find, I find small towns really interesting, you know, and it's interesting you say that because a lot of people find it interesting and some of them say you made me think about it differently um, because you have this sort of framing often of the city people and the country people and, and, and the suburbs sort of get lumped culturally, you know, in the culture war into the, into the rural people or the, not the city people, basically. And so we sort of overlay this culture war over land use. but. But I think the small town disrupts that because America has thousands of small towns that literally the street grid ends and you've got farms. I mean, these are rural people, these are country people, but they had urban settlements. They might have been four or five blocks big, but they were urban. And, and so when I say that, I don't mean everyone should be like the big city. I'm talking about the urban form itself. And, Americans everywhere, all across the country, have this heritage of living in either tiny or big cities, but they're all the same type of settlement. Um, and so when people say you're trying to turn us into the city, you know, I like to say to them, do you like to stroll down your local main street? That's a small city. Wouldn't you like to build more of that? It doesn't, you know, have to be Manhattan. It's like, 
we're sort of inhabiting this landscape that was once, um, I call it America's lost urban history. Sure. And it does seem to me, like, I don't know, we're, we're, we're in the same generation, right? And that generally, like I grew up in similar central Jersey place that was like had been farms and then it was these housing developments on one acre lots that were pretty far apart from your neighbor and you really could not walk anywhere besides just around your development. Um, and then now like where I have been drawn to want to live and then where a lot of my friends live, they want things that are maybe what our parents had grown up with, some more similar back in the, the 50s or the 40s or earlier, those whether they're small towns or small cities or larger cities, but that where you can walk and have a sense of a like a vibrant shared public life and like the inner ring suburbs are, are interesting i remember even in the the small town in new jersey where i where we moved from which was a real town not just like the sprawling suburb there was someone on the the town council it's like a leader of the town who every all of his friends had moved out to like the bigger more developed suburbs and he had stayed and then he was looking around and noticing there are all these young families coming in. He had felt left behind, but then realized that he was like on a vanguard and like it kind of felt kind of uh, funny about that. But I think we do see that there is that real interest uh, in developing these places. Are there examples for you of, of places where we're really seeing this done in a, a new, interesting way, kind of going back to our roots? Um, well, in my own hometown, there's a guy who owns a business. He's a young guy. He's only a couple years older than I am, I think. He has two kids. He's married. He owns a little business in what, you know, 100 years ago was a meat and potatoes Main Street business. It's a little, it's a little boutique. Um, but he, he's in favor of the big projects, but he's also, you know, a small business owner. And it's, just, it's sort of ironic because... Older people will say this town used to be great for families and now it's not, or it used to be vibrant and now it's not. But they also look askance at people coming in and having a slightly different idea of what the place should be. Um, you know, <laughs> so I think people like that are a big part of this. Um, I think developers are not evil and sometimes they need big projects. But allowing small-scale change like that, adapting an existing building, starting small business, um, I think that's a big part of it, of having a continuity with what's there, but also allowing things to continue to, to, to grow and to evolve. One interesting question I think you've looked at that I wonder about, too, is like how do faith communities fit into this and into the future of uh, our towns and cities and our places? And you have a really interesting article in America Magazine that we'll also link to um about suburban church parking lots if you've grown up in my church in the suburbs again had been on farmland and a massive parking lot surrounding it that was pretty full on sunday mornings and for mass on saturday and otherwise even if there was stuff happening at the church only a fraction of it was used so um you talk about i think you use the, the line oceans of asphalt that are surrounding our churches that are too empty most of the time why was that a subject you wanted to talk about church parking lots I don't remember what it was that sparked that specifically, but it, it may have been the movement out in California. And I think I mentioned this in the article. Um, and they go by the acronym YIGBI, which, which is first taking YIMBI, which is the opposite of NIMBI, yes, in my backyard. But then they go YIGBI, which is yes, in God's backyard. Oh, interesting. And so their whole thing is allowing churches to use some of this underutilized land for for housing, often housing for lower income folks or for older people um, who have a harder time finding housing, and especially in California. Um, 
And so there are churches that would like to do this kind of thing that sort of realize we don't need all this underutilized land. Some of them want it, but some of them don't. But the zoning code requires it. Um, I, I, I was speaking to, to some people um, who are all, you know, devout Catholics, and we were talking about this, and they had not particularly thought about it. Um, one of them said, you know, in Europe, they, they don't have that. They, somewhere in Europe, I think in Poland, she said, you know, they have these small, like, cottages around the church, and it's sort of a, a little town square with the church in the middle. What if, why don't we do that here? And I said, the zoning code. Right, it's not illegal. Yeah, it's not legal. <laughs> Except, I, and again, our old church, one of our old churches, we've been to all of those, but the one that was right in the neighborhood that like, hey, guess what? The parking lot's small, and if you don't get there early, you might have to parallel park on the street. Or better yet, we could walk to Mass or park over by the cafe and then walk to Mass and then go get a bite after Mass was over. Uh, so what, do you remember any of the, like, the things that people, other things besides housing that like, again like you said even there's a risk if you start using your parking lot for like hosting farmers markets or something you could start getting in trouble for using it for anything other than its intended purpose um so what ways that you've seen that uh, faith communities are using their parking lots in creative ways <laughs> not not a whole lot and well i mean yeah some type of commerce generally farmers markets and some people don't like that because they feel the church is making money but generally they're opening the space to, to small businesses they're not making the money um the housing thing is actually done here too. I haven't personally seen it. It's not very common, you know. One challenge is churches aren't just, you know, in the economic development or the social services business. So given the hoops that have to be jumped through to do this sort of thing, many churches, many pastors don't have the capacity for that. So, so I, I can't tell you a whole lot of examples. What I can tell you is we'd almost certainly see a lot more if we lowered the barriers to, to entry. I, I know that. So this gets us to another kind of uh, arcane, complicated uh, policy that's connected to zoning, which is parking minimums. It's another thing I've just learned about in the past few years that I never knew I should care about. But parking minimums, this idea that anytime you have any sort of building, you have to also have parking, right, that you account for. Is that, so how would you describe, maybe you could probably define it better than I can. Basically, generally the way it would work that, that I'm aware of, and there may be variations on it, but generally, um, depending on the use and depending on the square footage, there's just an equation that says, this is how many spots you need. So generally it's not taking into account how many people are arriving by a way other than the car. It's not taking into account the business and the clientele. It's just looking at the square footage. Um, so, you know, <laughs> that's how you end up with a huge parking lot that might be half empty because the code demands it. There is I, someone on, I forget what account on Twitter does this, but like, I think it's on Black Friday where they take pictures of half empty parking lots, which is supposed to be the busiest shopping day of the year. And yet we still see at the big box store parking lots just empty, this just stretches of asphalt. Um, so I... I'm just then curious what, I mean, I guess the question is like, what do you do? And it's change. You have to change some of these rules. Uh, but there are places that are cities and, or that are getting rid of this kind of thing that's been around for decades and parking minimums that there are, is some new development that can happen that don't have to put the same number of parking spots there. Have you seen that happening in more and more places? It feels like it is. Yeah. A lot of cities have been in the news for looking at that or doing that. Um, and, and for developers building, say, apartment buildings that don't have a parking space or two parking spaces for every person who's 
you know, estimated to be in the building. Um, and people will say, well, who would want to live in that if you can't park your car there? You know, well, nobody except for the people who, who just filled the building up. Right. So that, yeah, that is, I guess, a question too. Even if you're making development that you want to attract people to, that, that's both, that's being used all the time. So you'd have offices there and people living there and uh, restaurants and other like attractions, shopping. Um, if I'm driving down there and I can't find a parking spot because there weren't more parking spots or lots put in, I'm going to get frustrated and drive back home. Uh, so why? Do, yeah, that's I guess one argument for making sure we have enough parking. What, what would be a counter argument? So the counter argument is that the place should be so great that it doesn't need the parking. That you'll find a way to get there. Now you know when you're talking about the Walmart, that it's not that great. You're not going to go out of your way to get there. Sure. But if you're trying to make a, a real interesting, desirable place, you might. And I mean, we see that with American downtowns. People, there's not enough parking. People find a way to get there because they want to. Sure. Um, you see this even, well, this is another thing I've written about. I don't know, I don't know if my host here saw this one, um, but there's the shopping center in Fairfax County, it, you know, built in the 60s, ocean of parking, just a typical strip plaza. But it ended up, very unique history, interesting history. It ended up full of mostly um, Vietnamese businesses from the area's immigrant community. And it's a huge attraction. It's a cultural attraction. It's a commercial attraction. It's a community space. And the parking lot fills up, even though it's huge. Not because not it's not big enough, because so many people want to get there and, and they'll wait 10 minutes for a space and it's not just build more parking so I can run into the store. It's let me get rid of this car so I can go experience this place. And and if that can be done in a strip mall somewhere, it can we can do that anywhere. You starting you are seeing. I feel like uh, we live near Wheaton, Maryland, which has a lot of those kind of classic strip malls, um, like post-war strip malls. Um, but that you see more and more like. A wider range of restaurants that are there, for instance, you know, like big immigrant communities out in the suburbs. Like they say in DC area, if you want like the best Chinese food, you go to Rockville, Maryland, um, which is the suburbs, right? But that like almost retrofitting some of these places to become uh, kind of new, interesting, more like lively places. So that like the suburbs too themselves, even though we feel like are kind of static and we built this it's here, are also you know changing all the time. Yeah, that that's absolutely true. In fact, I mean. It's- some of the most diverse places are in the suburbs now and, and just culturally interesting, which is not how people think about them. Um, that's been going on for 20 or 30 years and there are still, still people on both sides who love them and hate them who think they're just these kind of boring bedroom communities. Um, they're upper class, they're mostly white, and, the, and many of them really are not anymore. Um, so one, one of the, the things that I guess a related topic when we start getting into these things is the, the automobile and the car. And that is often also written about transport and you connect to all these things, driving places versus what kind of public transit options are there. Um, and you've written really interestingly about cars. I think a lot of the time in this the space, the urbanism space, just very anti-car, which I, you know, I identify with. But then you're saying like, well, cars can be a tool and that you even like driving, but like it's how we use these tools that um, is a cause of a lot of stress and danger and uh, is what maybe needs to be kind of looked at. So can you talk a little bit about, about that is like how we use cars versus what they could be good for, maybe better for than how we use them. 
Yeah, yeah I, I do like driving. I like my car. <laughs> what I tell people is I don't like having to take it everywhere I want to, every time I want to do anything. <laughs> um, the problem isn't cars per se, or, you know, my problem isn't with cars. Some, some people might be. My problem is with, with the land use pattern that, that is built on the assumption that everyone is driving everywhere. Um, and that disadvantages people who maybe can't drive or can't afford a car. Um, and, you know, there's just an assumption that, yeah, in America you own a car and that's how you get around, except if you live in, like, Manhattan, <laughs> basically. But that just forecloses so much possibility. Um, one of the things I can't unsee now um, is how much space there is between everything, how much space the roads and the parking and the other car infrastructure takes up. And that's all space that you could do something with. But it's a choice to spread things out and to drive 10 minutes to, to get half a gallon of milk. It's not a choice many people ever really think about. But once you realize that's optional and there's a different way to do it and, and that that doesn't mean we're Manhattan. It could mean that we're a small town. It could mean that we're, um, you know, like these suburbs in DC where, around DC, where you have seen individual properties getting retrofitted so that you have town centers right next to the strip malls. Um, there's so much that could be done. And, uh, you know, I don't think we should limit ourselves with depending on the car. We think of cars as, as freedom. And I, when the pattern forces you into it for everything, I don't feel like that's freedom. Sure. So I'm curious for, for you, as you mentioned some of your pieces that you're Catholic um, and this really area of topics of interest to you that you write about for uh, a living, um, how those things come together for you? Do you feel like they're, they're connected? Does your faith inspire your work? I, I do feel like in some ways learning about Catholicism as a, at least in the U.S. especially, as this kind of urban religion with the church at the center of the town or the center of the city and the neighborhood building around it, it feels like a natural, some like connection um and then you know the catholic social teaching on on justice and building communities of solidarity uh that to care about land use and zoning makes sense that way but i'm just curious for you as someone kind of doing this professionally if your faith has any uh, connection to the work at all yeah i would i would say it does and what you said is is accurate um i'll tell you a little story i wrote this in the newsletter a while ago um this is higher level i suppose but it's sort of a way of thinking about things, trying to apply um, some of the Christian virtues when I'm trying, getting angry behind the wheel or something. I was at, I was at mass for the first time after um, the, the pandemic restrictions were lifted. You know, I had been looking forward to going back. I wanted to be there. Um, and it was like, you know, 9.45. And the priest started, started to do the, um, the, uh, the communion, Holy Communion. And I said, oh no, he's using the long Eucharistic prayer. <laughs> and, and then I stopped myself and I said, wait, I want to be here. It'll be five minutes longer. What difference does it make? And I, I realized that's how I feel when I'm trying to get, you know, speed up to get through the yellow light or like sitting at a, an intersection, getting angry at the guy in front of me in the car. And just to sort of have a sense of fortitude and a sense of patience. Um, and realizing that, that I think of that as a good way to be, but that our built environment works against those virtues. And that's very high level. You don't have to be Catholic, you know, for that. But 
but that's a way in which there's there's a connection actually sure talk about again a lot of people coming together in a place who might not have all that much in common and have to navigate being in that shared space together and making decisions you know like any any community um i'm interested too in your work because you described yourself as politically right of center and you're in conversations and in places that most folks who enter are would be probably left of center. I think it's safe to say when you're talking about things like transit and land use and the housing shortage. Um, yeah. So just curious about what your experience is there. And then also, again, as an interesting example to me, are these some issues that these topics that might be able to unite people across these intractable divides we have between like right and left in, in this country. So yeah, just curious on your own reflections uh, being in this space as someone who would be, you know, more conservative than liberal. Yeah. Um, well, you know, one way I do think they can bring people together. One way is that there's often a justice and an, a market or an economic argument here. So, you know, with zoning, you could either take the angle of that, that it's just and right that people can live close to their jobs, close that, you know, that they have more time with their families, that, that there's a racial justice aspect to, to allowing housing with the history of, um, of zoning being tied up with exclusion. Um, or you could say, it's my private property, I want to build a duplex. <laughs> or, or, you know, or you could take a regional view and say, a functioning, healthy metro area needs jobs and needs people to fill the jobs. And so sort of parochial, local, hyper-local interest shouldn't be allowed to go against that. I mean, you know, Different audiences want to hear or don't want to hear that. You tailor it. Um, people have different views on how they approach it, but those are all ways that you can arrive at the same conclusion. Um, and I'm sorry, what was the other component? Well, I'm just yeah, curious. Like, how do you feel in those spaces? Like so many of us, I think oh, right. we fill Twitter or our own Twitter feeds or like the people we talk to, we want to make sure like they're in our tribe, right? Our camp. And there's not much talking across those boundaries. But you seem to do that in a way that is just natural and that you're not like a stressed out person, like fighting against the opponent, but that you approach it in a different way. Right. Um, I, th I think I, I think I again have a higher level answer to that, which is that what I try to do is strip away the culture war layer that we've put on top of all of this stuff. Um, interesting little little bit. I wrote about a, a city in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia um, called Stanton, a city of about 20 to 30,000 people over the years. Um, and I basically said, this is, this is as American as you get. Conservatives should like this. It's a city. It's surrounded by country. It's out in rural red Virginia, I mean, you know, and it's great. <laughs> Everyone should like it. And somebody answered in the, in the comments and they said, I live here. I, you know, I like what you said. We love it here. But what makes us special isn't our urban form. It's our belief in faith and family. And I think, well, it's probably both. <laughs> it's probably both. I mean, how the, the physical form that the place you take lives in matters. And I, and I say that as someone on the center right, but I don't say that politically. I think it's a, a fact. And, and when you get past viewing all of this as an abstraction and that this is the ground we walk every day, it's the context of our lives. Um, you know, I mean, some, some of what I do is try to look at it conservatively, but some of it is just looking at, at as a very hard, basic, practical issue and strip all of the abstraction and sometimes, frankly, the nonsense away. 
So maybe just one last question for you before I let you go, which is about um, just thinking, we've talked a little bit about faith communities and maybe how we could have the Yigbies, you know, using our, how we think about how we use our churches or our land uh, to, to welcome more neighbors or to support the community in different ways. But just also wondering, a lot of our folks, I imagine, are, would be either in urban environments or in the suburbs uh, connected with faith communities. And are there things in your experience you've seen that, how, what can our faith communities be doing in any of these kind of conversations or, or topics? Like what space is there for, for faith communities to be involved in uh, shaping uh, our, our communities and the built environment, even beyond their own physical boundaries? Uh, that's, that's a tough question because it goes back to some of what I said before about capacity and, and what's on the books. Um, one interesting thing I've seen, I, I met a Catholic architect uh, in Richmond, and he worked on a project. I don't know if it's something that's going to happen, but it was in Detroit, which is not where you think of new development happening, but in fact, it is happening. And he basically took and empty a couple of vacant urban blocks, you know, that had once been houses, and sketched out how you could put a little sort of Catholic village on it. And, and not just that it was only Catholics who would be allowed to live there or whatever, but that it would be the church sort of leading a redevelopment of this place and, and rebuilding something there. And, and he explicitly thought of it in those terms. Um, now that's something you can do somewhere that has hit the bottom. It's not something you could do in most places. Um, you, you need something much less dramatic <laughs> in most places. Um, honestly, I don't know exactly what that would look like. Churches are very wary of wading into this stuff, probably rightly so because it is seen as political. Um, first, we should stop seeing it as political. It's not you know, any more than eating lunch is political because it's, it's the context of where we live. Yeah, and I do think of um, some cool examples of, of Jesuits and Jesuit-related uh, places who you know, do get involved in community organizing and kind of taking on the, some of the local issues that, that affect their communities, especially in places low, like in the kind of lower socioeconomic classes in those neighborhoods where they kind of see the issues up front and then are involved or maybe are involved in, in economic development. And there's, I think, a lot of cool stuff that's happening there like as an outgrowth of like, the faith that calls us to work for justice that, yeah, it's a natural thing that we're going like we'll have a soup kitchen, we'll feed the hungry and we'll get to know people and start realizing there are issues with that there's not enough buses or that there's not enough housing nearby or uh, the, the healthcare in the area is bad or the schools are challenged that we can then become partners and maybe even bring a moral voice to some of those debates um, that at least in, in some places where there's you know respect for uh, kind of that that history and for like for a faith community that's involved in the community can bring that a moral voice and perspective that might be missing otherwise yeah absolutely well I mean you know we do these things because we think they're good not out of an abstraction, not out of sort of moral busybodying and this is how we think you should live. I, I try to bring a humility to it um, because people perceive a lot of this discourse as being elitist and as telling them how to live and, you know, we're going to come for their cars and this type of thing. And no, not at all. I mean, not at all, honestly. Um, I try to bring a humility to it and I I try to my view is make more possible for more people not to tell anyone what to do. 
Well, Addison Del Mastro, thank you again so much for coming in. And this has been a really interesting conversation. Again, we'll link to your newsletter and some of your other pieces in the show notes so people uh, can find you. And we'll link to your Twitter as well, which is always interesting to uh, follow. And thank you again for, for the time. And I'll uh, be excited to see uh, where you go next. Yeah, very, very cool. Thank you for having me. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.